the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Joined now by Mustafa Suleiman. He is one of the people who John Ellis says is the half dozen or so who actually understand artificial intelligence and what we're facing. He's also the author of this brand new book, The Coming Wave. The Coming Wave is, um, uh, I have to say, it's sort of epic. Good morning uh, or afternoon, Mustafa. I'm not sure where you are. Where are you today? Good afternoon, Hugh. Great to be with you. I am in New York today, so it's a lovely sunny oh, afternoon. We are in the same time zone. Then I will let people know. We are taping this on Wednesday, September 6th at 5 in the afternoon. I'll play it on my radio show tomorrow and make the transcript available. Thank you for joining me. I did not plan, uh, it wasn't planned that you would come on to talk about the coming wave at the same time that Time Magazine has Elon Musk on the cover talking with Walter Isaacson about artificial intelligence. Did you have that planned that way for the rollout of the book? That was not planned, but, you know, the timing is going to work out just fine, I think. It's pretty funny to see yeah, this the, come out. Very interesting. This, the synergy is very good. Now, when John Ellis, and I don't know if you know John, but he's a newsman's newsman, when he says a half dozen to eight people understand AI and he lists you in that, is that hyperbole or is that an accurate statement? Well, I mean, I think there are lots of people who understand AI very deeply. I mean, the field is is huge now. Um, and, you know, there are many, many people who've been working on it for some time, actually. I'm among the group who has been working on AI, you know, in the earlier stages in this new wave. So, you know, I started DeepMind along with two friends in tw 2010. And, you know, it's, I guess it's almost been sort of 13 years or so at this point um, working in the field. Uh, but there are many luminaries above and beyond me, you know, many professors who have been in the field for 30 years or so toiling away. So I, I'm really part of the new generation. When he says that, I think he means, and when I read the Time Magazine article, I saw the names of Hasabis, Elon, Larry Page, Sam Altman, Siobhan Zalas, uh, you. Right. And I'm curious, could we put you all in a conference room somewhere and come up with a regulatory scheme after a few days? <laughs> well, the funny thing is that the anecdote in that Time magazine piece described a time when we actually did try to do that. So myself, Elon Musk, Demis, my co-founder at the time, uh, Eric Schmidt, Reid Hoffman, um, you know, the list goes on, a bunch of other people. We got together at SpaceX in uh, 2015 uh, and that was one of the first times where we had convened to try and figure out like what the future of safe AI might look like. How do we sort of regulate this? And, you know, the uh, various combinations of that group have been meeting, you know, for a pretty long time. And, you know, we were doing our best to try and figure it out. Now, you're talking with someone who's been a regulator since 1983 in one form or another at the state, the local and the federal level. 
And my first lecture on le- regulatory policy was in 1974 by James Q. Wilson. So I brought a regulator and a lawyer's eyes to this. And I don't think it's nice. possible, Mustafa. I really don't think it's possible to contain the technology. But I want you to be able to explain to people why, if I am wrong, that is a bad situation. Could we start, perhaps, by having you uh, define both AI, AGI, and ACI? Because you went to great pains at the beginning of the coming wave to make sure people are understanding that one is a science, one is an endpoint, and one is where we are right now. So why don't you do the intro for the Pittsburgh Steelers fans who are listening? <laughs> That's a great description. So artificial intelligence as a field is the science and engineering of teaching machines to learn because learning is what makes us unique as a species, right? We can pick up new skills. We can learn new languages. Crucially, we can use tools, right? No other species really uses tools in a developed way and tools help us be smarter, more efficient, more productive. You know, they are really the engine of progress. And so if anything, you can think of the quest to build AIs as a quest to help create more tools in the world that help us grow better crops, you know, travel more efficiently, use energy more efficiently, have better healthcare. That's really what we're driving at here. The narrower forms of AI, um, which we're working on these days, are where you apply a machine learning tool in a product. So a piece of software that maybe recognizes faces in your photographs or it maybe you know dictates your speech so that when you when you can speak into your telephone it'll transcribe you know your text messages those kinds of things are what we have today where we're going in the future are artificial capable intelligences so they can't just record and translate information but they can actually take actions on your behalf they can do useful things for you they so that that might include things like booking an appointment, you know, to go to the doctor, right? Like automatically on your behalf, you know, maybe in the future, they'll be able to organize your vacation, right? Maybe they'll be able to buy your groceries. Those are the kinds of capabilities that we expect to emerge over the next five years as these AIs get better and better. The third type of AGI. (laughs) uh, Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that all sounds benign. That sounds like a wonderful thing. But it's not necessarily a wonderful thing. And that takes us to everything between ACI and AGI or ACI where we are today and ACI just prior to AGI. What is it that worries you so that comes through on almost every page on the coming wave? Yeah, you're exactly right. So the third phase of that beyond ACI, where you're just getting AIs to do useful, practical things for you, is an an AI that gets out of the box, right? It self-improves over time. It can develop its own goals. And, you know, it may be very difficult to contain that and prevent it from spreading far and wide and doing damage. Now, I think we're a long way away from anything like that. And a lot of people have speculated about a point at which, you know, an AGI might just recursively self-improve. So just constantly get better and better through updating its own programming. And that could be a dangerous event. But I, I mean, I think it's a very theoretical, very speculative idea. And I think it's decades away. And a lot of the conversation has been focused on that, unfortunately, this Terminator or Skynet framing of AI, which I think is pretty unhelpful and is pretty far off right now. 
It is, but what I did, I think, I especially appreciate about the coming wave from a non-scientist lawyer perspective is that you put it in the context of the general scientific revolution of the last 200 years. And the example that stands out is the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell invents a telephone in 1876. By 1900, there are 600,000 of them. By 1910, there are 6.8 million of them. That's a glimpse of the rapid, almost um, impossible to stop proliferation of technology. And I don't know how many phones we have today, and they're nothing like Mr. Bell used to say, hey, come here. So what this inexorable march of technology is one theme of the coming wave. So we're going to get to AGI at some point. Is that at some point? I'm not going to ask you for a time. But do you agree we will get to that point of machines learning on their own, independent of human instruction and oversight? Yes, I do think that if you think out far enough, like on a century time scale or maybe five or six decades, then, you know, that has been the trajectory of technology so far, right? If something is useful, then it tends to get cheaper and easier to use. It sounds obvious to say that, but it is actually a law of technology. Everything, all of our general purpose technologies, steam, electricity, even language itself, you know, they're, they're sort of ideas that evolve as they get more and more useful and they adapt, right? Just like we don't use telephones so much anymore, we use smartphones because it's a more efficient way of communicating. And if that trajectory continues, then you essentially have smaller and smaller units of capability that can be transferred, moved around. You can now put a million images on a tiny thumbstick that used to take pallets and pallets, warehouses full of magazines to print, and then could only be drawn before that, you know, hundreds of years ago, where you had to paint an image to be able to communicate it. Now we can just send it in the, you know, instantly. So we, we, we're on a multi-century transition from things being really big and slow and complex to move around to being really, really small and transmissible and being captured as ideas. And if that continues, then you're right. We end up in this scenario where power or the ability to get things done, the ability to transmit information and to take actions, that can actually be spread far and wide. And that's what I've really tried to address in my book, which is what does that mean for the nation state? And very well done. And the alarm is, is sounding clear here. And I want people to understand that you are no fan of totalitarian control techniques, and you write very candidly about the surveillance state that is the Chinese Communist Party, and the fact that they are perfecting via the use of uh, ACI and a great deal of camera and surveillance, what is going to become the omnipresent state. And I, I don't know how they can ever undo that. Do you, Mustafa? Do you have any sense that you can go backwards after you've crossed that line? You're totally right. I'm very scared about it. I think it is genuinely something that we should be worried about. Like dystopian authoritarian surveillance is going to be one of the major threats that we face in this next wave of technology because it just makes it easier to hoover up lots of data to track everybody's movements. I mean, we're now moving from, you know, tracking people's faces to now tracking people's gait, you know, the style with which you walk. That is actually a unique signature 
that can be recorded and you can actually tell the difference from, you know, between in a crowd, between different people, just based on, on the view from behind in terms of the way they walk, right? So look, there's huge benefit to these kinds of technologies. We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Obviously, we all care deeply about security and we want to make sure that we have law and order in our countries. But at the same time, you know, it, it does create more and more concentrated power. And this is the confusing thing about the coming wave. It actually does two contradictory things at the same time. On the one hand, it actually empowers authoritarian or centralized regimes, let's call it, everywhere you look, from companies to governments, whether they're democratic or their dictatorships. On the other hand, it also spreads power because, you know, these models, these new types of AI are also available in what's called open source software, right? You can actually download the code from the internet and run it yourself on your own hosted instance of the software. And on the face of it, that's a great story because it means everybody is going to get access to some of the best new techniques to make predictions, to do ranking algorithms, to help us build great software in the world, right? That's great. The downside is that can also be used for manipulation and harm and spreading dissent and all sorts of things, right? So that's really the threat on the open source front is the potential for bad actors to take advantage of it. Okay, by way of background for you, about two weeks ago, Tristan Harris uh, of the uh, the center that tries to suggest regulatory means came on the show and gave his dark dystopian vision of what happens. And four or five years ago, I went out to Palo Alto with a bunch of conservative writers and we sat around Mark Zuckerberg's dining room and he talked to us and I asked him a question I want to ask you, see what your answer compares with his. Is it possible with enough data on the people who have shot up schools before and they generally fit a pattern that we recognize, alienated youth, mostly male, under the age of 22 with mental problems out of certain family structures. I asked him if we could predict Minority Report, a la Minority Report, who would be a school shooter? And he said flatly, no. What do you say, Mustafa Suleiman? I think it's very unlikely. I would say the probability that you could do that has increased over the last five years for two reasons. Firstly, the prediction algorithms have got much, much better than they were five years ago. And secondly, we're now collecting much more data that describes behaviors that we can then use to make predictions. But I would say that is not a desirable end state, right? To, to my mind, you know, you know, you're basically describing collecting vast amounts of private information about all sorts of people, young and old at school and in families and at work. And, you know, in order to make that prediction, I think that would be a really dangerous infringement of our civil liberties. And I think the potential harm that would arise to justify that data collection would need to be really extreme. I'm, I'm, I, I really don't mean to trivialize the consequences of a school shooting. It's truly awful. But I think it would need to be a risk of millions of people dying as a result to justify that. For example, you could imagine on the synthetic biology side of things, which is the other half of this new wave of technologies which is coming, is that you know people with fewer and fewer skills and training in biology are soon going to be able to engineer new types of pandemics, you know, pathogens that have pandemic grade qualities, like they can spread really fast, 
Um, they're even more lethal than previously. They can attach to different hosts. So it's getting cheaper and easier to use the tools of modern computational biology and some bad actors, some, you know, potential school shooters, for example, now like might in the future be able to use those kind of tricks. That would be truly horrific and, and potentially causes mass harm. And I think would justify, you know, more interventionist surveillance to try and prevent it. Yeah, if, if you find authoritarians who are mad as hatters, they're going to take the coming wave and demand of their scientists the ability to synthesize bioweapons using whatever open AI uh, software codes are out there. And years ago, before this got started, my toxicologist brother told me, forget nukes, forget chemical weapons, biological weapons are the ones that right. will eventually lead to world uh, uh, disaster. Let me bounce off you before I go back to the specifics of the coming wave. Uh, do you remember Charles Krautheimer, the great American uh, commentator, columnist, and, and pundit? Yeah. Charles um, wrote an essay before he died on why we hadn't been contacted by intelligent life. And it was his theory, and he was an agnostic, that it's because all higher forms of civilization destroy themselves. I've always thought that rather haunting. What do you think of that proposition? I think it's too pessimistic. Um, I mean, look, it's an easy speculation to make. I mean, we're certainly as a species both becoming more civilized in the sense that we don't club people over their head with batons anymore, but we're certainly inventing new lethal ways to be able to impact hundreds of millions of people in one go. Um, and the challenge is that the tools that we're using to implement that both deliver good and potential harm in equal measure, right? So, you know, the power to broadcast information is now available to millions and millions of people. I think that can only be a good thing, right? In the past, you had to have a printing press, you had to be a licensed journalist, you had to have money for an education. Today, you can just, you know, broadcast on social media and pick your platform of choice. And I think that's an incredible, you know, transformation and delivered huge amounts of benefit. But if that same trajectory applies to this new wave of synthetic biology, and you can just engineer new compounds really easily, just with a natural language instruction with one of these large language models, that would be pretty bad. But I do think that it's worth being optimistic about this. Like we've had dangerous and confusing and scary new technologies many times before. I mean, people who first saw, you know, escalators or new aircrafts, new flight. I mean, they were petrified of flight. Right. And we, we actually now have aircraft that are safer than most forms of transport. It's kind of incredible that we could get into a plane at 40,000 feet and fly comfortably and confidently every time. So we just have to apply the same level of scrutiny and caution and care that we have done for previous waves. Well, I want to spend at least half of our time talking about that. We have to apply part because that's the regulatory scheme, which is the most difficult nut. A lot of what is valuable about the coming wave is that you spend the first half of the book teaching people who might not otherwise know. The common reader who's generally interested in things, the history of science and the history of technological advance and sort of the march, this inexorable Progress, And then you start talking about a couple of fields in which we have to be specifically, uh, specifically very careful. And you talk about the Turing test and the modern Turing test. And I like to use this. I'd love you to explain both of them to the audience so that I don't screw it up. Because to me, it presented exactly what you're concerned about. Because if we do get to something that passes the modern Turing test, we're all kind of screwed, I think, Mustafa. 
So for your listeners, uh, uh, you know, benefit, a lot of people won't know what the Turing test is. I think the Turing test was proposed by a computer, a British computer scientist, actually, um, in the 50s, Alan Turing, um, who basically said, you know, if you want to evaluate whether or not a machine is intelligent, you should look at what it says. And if it can imitate human speech well enough to hold a conversation with another human such that they can't tell whether there's a human speaking or a machine speaking, then you could say that it's passed the Turing test and it's probably intelligent. That was his thesis. And for the last 60 or 70 years, that's been a North Star for machine learning and AI researchers uh, and, and a great inspiration to many of us. But now for anybody who's played with any of these large language models, these chatbots, um, whether it's ChatGPT or my own company, Inflection AI, we have an, an AI called Pi, which you can find at pi.ai stands for personal intelligence. It's a very conversational, fluid, you know, human-like chatty experience. It's super knowledgeable. It's very kind. It's really respectful. It's just like chatting to somebody at a bar or asking a local for directions, you know, in a, in a new village that you're visiting. And you could probably say that it's close to passing the Turing test, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's intelligent. It's just good at imitating good conversation and it's very very knowledgeable and so i think it's probably time for us to rethink the turing test and in my book i propose a modern turing test one that focuses not on just on what ais can say but more importantly on what they can do and what their capabilities are and that goes back to the aci concept artificial capable intelligence now what I found flabbergasting is that your test, one example would be to say to any uh, ACI function, here's $100,000, produce me a billion, uh, uh, a company that makes a million dollars, get me a 10x return on my investment and do all of the or do all of the sequenced tasks that go into that. Anyone who started a company and you've started a few know that that's almost impossible to detail the business plan. And then the business plan gets thrown out on day one and you start a second business plan. Do you think we're close to that, Mustafa, where someone can say, here's $100,000, design me a way to make a million? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think that we can probably do individual components of that process in the next five years, but stringing together all the elements at the right time is really tough. So for example, I think it would be possible to get an AI to, you know, do market research, figure out what product people, you know, like, figure out what might be missing in the market, and then generate some new examples of, you know, that product, um, you know, in images or in blueprints. I certainly think it could do that. Um, in the next five years. And then I think, you know, the tricky thing would then be going off and finding um, a manufacturer. It would need to go and do the research as to what the best company was. It probably will be able to in the next five years, essentially pick up the phone, make a call, um, lay out the specifications, negotiate over the price, negotiate over the deliverables. You know, obviously, it won't be able to, um, you know, sign contracts or establish, you know, a corporation, um, so I think with minimal oversight, it'll be capable of doing this 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 task um, in the next five years or so. 
So what occurred to me as I was reading this, if you got every presentation that had been made for the past 20 years at Kleiner Perkins, every single one, every one of their PowerPoints, and you put them into your AI, and then you found out which ones had succeeded in gaining funding in the first round from Kleiner Perkins, would you then be able to expect your model to produce the necessary template on which to propose to secure funding? Yeah, I mean, I think it probably could do that. I I, th I think that the the pace of change really is accelerating. It's pretty remarkable, and the surprising thing is that the knowledge and expertise of the world has been recorded increasingly on the web. Right? We've digitized everything, so these models can just learn from what's already out there. You know, in in 2016 and 2017, when I was at DeepMind, I did some of the first. AI radiology work that had been done in the world, and we published it in the in the journal Nature, one of the best journals in the world. And the remarkable thing is that the AI was able to read over a million eye scans, and the best ophthalmologists, consultant ophthalmologists in the world, may have only seen thirty thousand cases in their entire career, right, over a multi-decade period. And so this AI was able to learn. 50 plus, I think it was 52 um, blinding diseases and diagnose it as accurately as, um, as, as human experts. And so just because it's able to see so many more examples and see the full breadth of human knowledge and, and past experience, that already makes it you know, likely to be a lot more accurate. And, and we're getting better at eliminating the errors and the false positives over the years as well. So it, that's the trajectory that we're going to be on, on, on in every field, I think. So now take this to its next conclusion. We are in an arms race, and you spend a lot of time talking about why arms races are bad for technology, but also somewhat inevitable. We, meaning the West, the countries of, of uh, the free world, are in an arms race with the totalitarian countries when it comes to AI. We have to win that arms race. But you seem to dismiss the nuclear model, which worked to a certain extent to at least establish and maintain a lead in the West when it comes to weapons of mass destruction of the nuclear variety. Why will that or will that not work when it comes to AI vis-a-vis -vis sort of the totalitarian axis that is Beijing, Russia, and Tehran? So, so look, my, my issue with the arms race framing is that it is zero sum. It implies that there is a moment when we achieve supremacy and we're ahead of our competitors. And it leaves us with the question, what do we do with that advantage? Are we actually proposing to intervene in their, you know, sort of course of pro progress and really hold them back in perpetuity for, for, for decades? I mean, it, I think pe people who really obsess over the arms race framing just aren't thinking about what we do next with that framing. And I think it's a mischaracterization of how science and technology unfolds. Now, I'm not saying that we don't want to be leaders in science and technology. You know, the United States and the West in general is thankfully still the leader in, in tech today and in software. And we should keep investing and preserve that lead with everything that we've got. Super important. But what I'm saying is technology naturally proliferates. Everybody gets it. It spreads far and wide. And so we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we can get far enough ahead that we'll permanently suppress our competitors and keep them at bay.
because that will naturally agitate them to an extreme degree and most likely lead to an inevitable conflict, one which we may not be able to win and one which would be ridiculously costly for the world in general. Yeah, I do not believe we can win that. Uh, based upon the 80 years of rivalry and nuclear technology, all we can hope to do is to deter the deployment of weapons of mass destruction. And the only way to deter it is to assure your adversaries that whatever they've got, you've got something at least, at, least, at least equally as devastating as they have, and it can get around what defenses they have created. And that is um, something of a stasis. That is sort of an equilibrium. But you did put the cheat code in here, and I knew you had done your research. There's one name in here that I doubted I would see that everyone's got to know. It's called AQ Khan. And if people don't know who oh, AQ yeah. Khan is, AQ Khan proved technology can be exported illegally of the sort. He built the, the what is called the Pakistani bomb or the Muslim bomb. He stole the technology from the uh, uh, Northern European countries very, very carefully. And over many years, he took it to Pakistan. They produced, and he always lived in sort of regal uh, isolation, but he was quite honored by the Pakistani military government because he brought them the means of deterring India, which got to nuclear capability. So isn't that the best model that we can hope for, that we have to stay ahead and we have to deter by being ahead? And if I'm right about that, are we positioned to do that? I'm going to talk about the regulatory structure in a second. Do you think we can stay ahead of the CCP when it comes to this? Yeah, no, I, I do think that is the right model, pragmatically speaking. I mean, you, but uh, but I do think it's also worth considering not just AQ Khan, but the North Koreans. I mean, on an absolute yeah. shoestring budget, completely isolated from the rest of the world for five decades, they've managed to produce, you know, ICBMs and a nuclear warhead. I mean, it's a kind of a remarkable achievement. The challenge we have with this next wave of technology is that it's unlike nuclear. You know, nuclear requires sourcing uranium-235, handling it with care, you know, very carefully, um, you know, distilling it and purifying it, and then ultimately turning it into a warhead. It's an extremely complex and physical task. With the development and capital of intensive, very capital intensive, it takes a lot of money. Absolutely. Right. And it's actually easy for us to monitor because we can see we can track where these facilities are. You know, largely speaking, I think, you know, you know, governments know where every facility is in the world that is enriching uranium. And that's obviously a good thing for non-proliferation. And that's actually that friction, that kind of slowness in the system has actually enabled us to, to actually reduce the number of nuclear powers over the over the last 50 years it's quite incredible i think we've gone down from 11 to 7 you know so that's a real achievement um and you know but but unfortunately i think it's quite different to software which obviously you know evolves much more quickly because it isn't you know manifested in physical you know physical objects right it it lives on the internet and the internet is much much harder to to surveil so when we come down to it, the, the whole idea of research and development going into this right now, I, I was taken aback, I even put out on X, that Amazon's R&D budget is $78 billion a year, which if it were a country, would be the ninth largest country GDP devoted to R&D. How much money, how many people are trying to get an edge in this field, Mustafa? 
It, it, it is very expensive. But again, going back to this sort of contradictory, you know, sort of frame, it, the absolute cutting edge, the very best models in the world do cost hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. But at the same time, the open source is widely available just 12 to 18 months behind the cutting edge. And so that's the challenge with proliferation is that it means that you know, less capable actors. You don't have to be one of the best AI labs in the world to actually produce something that is pretty powerful. And so, you know, going back to your point about the surveillance infrastructure, I think that that's potentially going to make people feel more inclined to want to monitor who produces these models, just as we monitor who has access to, you know, sensitive substances like uranium-235 and anthrax and you know, who's being trained in handling those materials and who's capable of moving them around and which companies manufacture the components in that supply chain. You know, we should really think about the digital sphere, no different to how we think about, you know, regulating and monitoring the the physical, you know, realm of, of these kinds of, uh, you know, sensitive things like biological and chemical weapons. Let me talk about where you and Tristan Harris cross over. And I don't think he is actually a creator so much as a, um, uh, an illuminator of what's going on. He says we are one election cycle away from the last free election in 2028. And he and his partners at the AI Dilemma Initiative all say the era of deepfake is upon us. Well, on page 169, you write, uh, welcome to the era of deepfake. And I, I just want to point out to people, even if they're watching on the Salem News Channel and they see Mustafa talking to me, they have no idea if that's Mustafa. Uh, they have no idea if it's me. Uh, it's, I hope it's you. I've never met you. And they kind of trust me because I've got earned trust over 23 years. But how far away are we from your being able to say, oh, I don't want to do another book interview. I hate my book tour. I'm tired of talking to people, either of those who've read the book or who don't. And so I'm going to plug in my AI and I'm going to use my generative self to do the interview with Hewitt. How far are we away from that? You know, we aren't very far away. I do, you know, I, 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 I definitely am concerned about that. I would say that within the next five years, it's going to be indistinguishable. Uh, we're already at a stage where, you know, it's pretty good, but you can tell. I mean, you know, if, 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 if you're on a very pixelated uh, line and you have low bandwidth um, and it's a bit grainy, you know, you could certainly see some deep fakes, which are pretty good at this point. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that we're just going to have to learn to adapt. You know, I, I think it's also important to remember that we are, you know, the most resilient and the most adaptable species we've ever encountered. And we will be able to identify just as we have done with the onset of spam, right? Like, you know, people used to get all kinds of junk emails and, you know, that the, the volume of that has actually been pretty well managed over the last 20 years on the web. Likewise with fraud and criminal activity. I mean, it's actually amazing that we transact tens of trillions of dollars on the web today, and it is the engine of progress of the last 20 years. And actually criminal activity and fraud is actually a tiny fraction, a minuscule fraction. It's a cost, it's bad, we have to deal with it, but it's actually not stopped our progress overall. And I think we're just going to have to find new ways of adapting here. I mean, one such example would be cryptography, right? We already have cryptography that protects communications between our websites, between our messaging apps. And so we're just going to have cryptography to stream our video so that you know that, you know, I come to you from a verified endpoint, right? I Just like you authenticate yourself 
into your bank in order to access your money and move your money around, right? I will have to authenticate myself into a verified app so that when I communicate with you, you know that it's actually me. Now, I think that solves a significant chunk of the problem. I don't think I can be imitated because anyone who wants to trust a source, which is not authentically from my signed key, is obviously a source that you shouldn't trust, right? So that doesn't get rid of the entire problem, but it's one of the practical strategies which we can and will put in place to make sure we can verify who's saying what. Yeah, Mustafa, uh, in the last four years, I sat down with the head of elder fraud at the Department of Justice, and elder fraud against people of the age 65 and older in the United States has gone off of the charts because their resistance to fraud is quite low because their technological sophistication stops at around age 50. And I think part of the advantage of the coming wave is that you're trying to alert people that they need to stay on this and stay smart about this. But I, I want to ask you about regulatory approaches because this is the key. There are a, a lot of different ways to regulate. Going back to the Interstate Commerce Commission and railroads in, in the uh, 19th century, right up through what you tried to do at Google. And none of them work perfectly, right? The FDA does not work perfectly. We get drugs that go bad. And that's probably our most highly regulated um, uh, industry in the United States is food and drug, especially in the applications for medicine. So what is the first step that a serious government effort would take to bring this under a coherent regulatory structure, by this meaning the advance of ACI? Yeah. So the first thing to say is that nothing works perfectly, right? And so let's not let perfection be the enemy of the good. We have to be practical here and we have to be forgiving of our regulatory agencies. They have a really tough job. They're not trying to screw things up. We want them to succeed. And more than ever, we want the nation state, the democratic process, our, our, our institutions of, of regulation to perform better and better. So I, I write this not as somebody who you know, hates on these institutions and wants them to fall, but somebody who you know, genuinely sees their weaknesses and wants to make them better. So practical things that we can focus on, the first is that we need to raise awareness. I mean, that's really the function of my book. I'm trying to establish in a very calm, sensible way here are the practical facts about what these technologies are likely to do, how much better they're getting, how quickly they're getting. Second thing is, it's going to have to be driven by the industry itself to begin with, right? And we've already started that work. Um, you know, the seven biggest large language model AI companies, um, myself included, Inflection, OpenAI, DeepMind, Google, Microsoft, Meta, we were all called before President Biden a couple months ago to sign up to a set of voluntary commitments, which involve us pressure testing or red teaming. So like trying to find weaknesses in our chatbot and AI models, trying to break them as best we can. So for example, one of the weaknesses that's, that people found is that they, they could potentially be used to coach somebody to manufacture um, you know, one of these pandemic uh, pathogens that we talked about earlier, because they're really good at giving feedback. They've got good technical expertise. They're quite accurate. And so it kind of reduces the barrier to entry to people who wanted to get coached in how to cause mass harm. And we shared that insight among all the groups. So we eliminated that, 
you know, capability from the models. And, you know, it's still a work in progress. It's not completely solved, but we're, we're, we're sort of trying to stay ahead of the curve here by proactively cooperating, um, you know, with now, the various now cooperation. I, I want to jump in. I, I read that and I read about the Biden meeting at the White House and Tristan was on. And I've talked to Ro Khanna and Mike Gallagher, two of the smarter congressmen about this. If it's cooperation, it's not regulation. If there isn't a hammer, there isn't an anvil on which anyone can be broken. Do you believe that there's any agency currently stood up, whether in the UK, the USA, or any of the Western states, that is competent to judge AI advances as whether they're sinister or promising? Even one agency that's got the talent and the depth to do that. Yes, I do. Several. So the first is NIST. So the National Standards Body certainly has the capabilities. Its job is not to do enforcement, so it doesn't fully answer your question. But in terms of having the technical capabilities to define the right standards um, in you know an external way, so you're right, completely agree with you that the voluntary commitments were not enforceable. There's no anvil. It's not real regulation. It is just a voluntary commitment. And so fundamentally, what this is going to take is new primary regulation. And we have to accept that. It's very challenging to get it through, but it, it is what's required. And I think we should just lean into that. Second thing I would say is, you know, the Europeans have done a pretty good job here. They've been working on the EU AI Act for the last four years and they've defined a pretty comprehensive, quite sensible framework, in my opinion, that tries to focus on, number one, the capability. So what can these models actually do in practice? Number two, you know, is this applied to a high stakes environment? Like, is there a risk of causing significant harm? For example, is it used in a medical type environment where we have a long history of being able to identify risk and ensure reproducibility. That's the key thing. It's like you want to make sure that a tool that you're going to use does the same thing over and over and over again. These AI models don't do that yet. They're not reliable. They can't be used in high uh, risk production settings. They can't be used to control big pieces of infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But they can be used for lightweight conversation. They can be used in much you know, more creative settings where you're looking for brainstorming or inspiration. And so they've done a pretty good job of trying to focus on the high stakes framework and trying to focus on the capabilities. They haven't passed the regulation yet, um, and it's still undergoing a lot of back and forth. But, you know, I think there's cause to be optimistic that there's a framework there. What you write in the uh, in the coming wave is that it's hated by everyone, so it must be doing something right. Congressman Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, uh, likes to say that the EU is going to regulate themselves into an AI desert, that no companies will do there will go there and actually innovate because they'll be regulated. My two models that I think work over the longest period of time in the most, um, uh, the greatest variety of settings is enforced transparency and liability. Enforced transparency is no matter if you're at DeepMind or you're at Google or you're anywhere, DARPA has the right to go into any meeting, any room and study any code and take that back to D.C. to talk about it, not to exploit it, not to commercialize it, but they have visibility as right now the Atomic Energy Agency or the International Atomic Energy Agency is supposed to have visibility into every nuclear proliferating state. Do you agree with the idea of baseline transparency for everyone who's screwing around in this area or in the CRISPRs area of synthetic biology? 
Yes, I agree with that with a couple of caveats. Um, so those caveats would be that you have to make sure you have technical enough people who understand what they're looking at, because otherwise they might misunderstand something or see something that, you know, concerns them. And actually they've sort of, you know, exaggerated it or misrepresented it. And that could get out of control. The second thing is, who does the transparency report go to? Because if it ends up, you know, going to competitors, that's actually a major problem. And none of the companies will cooperate if they feel like there's an IP leakage risk. You know, the third sort of ties into both of these things, which is in order to have highly technical people um, and, you know, on the regulator or on the investigator side, you have to pay these people the way that we pay people in the private markets. And a lot of people don't like that idea. They can't wrap their head around uh-huh. the idea that somebody it's in funny that service- you, you I brought that up with Ro Khanna. I ran the ops personnel management under Reagan, and we had a special, uh, they called it a schedule for the scientists at China Lake. You have to basically pay regulators in any field like this five, six, seven times what the highest paid government employee makes. And the reason is, if you don't, they just go off and go to work for the government, go to work for a competitor somewhere, and you have to sign them to contracts. So you're absolutely right. We need a pay scale commensurate with that. But if it was DARPA, Mustafa, would you trust DARPA to be able to do this? Yeah, I would definitely trust them technically. But of course, people who work at DARPA do end up going and working in industry. So you'd have to address the kind of long-term incentive to remain in public service. In, In a strange way, I would be more inclined to trust long-term servants of the NSA, for example, than I would a sort of research agency where people might come and do a three to five-year stint and then leave, right? I so, agree with that. you know, I, I think this is a good direction that we should experiment with. The other model that has worked is the liability model, where the trial bar uh, seeks out like a heat-seeking missile. Anyone who's been injured offers to represent them for free and goes and punishes the injurer. Now, it does have uh, a consequence of slowing down technology, but it is mighty in its uh, impact on existing bad actors. What do you make of the liability model? I think the danger with that is that it can create an extremely litigious environment. I mean, if there's a profit incentive to try and win a case, Yes, that on the one hand is good because it means that people really push hard to try and find weaknesses in, you know, where people have been harmed. On the flip side, you know, you can end up with cases that are very costly to companies and it really slows them down and makes them afraid to experiment and slows down innovation. So I think it's a tough one to kind of get the balance right on that. I think in general, you know, where people can really see a large scale harm that's actually affecting. Uh, Mustafa, we're starting to lose your bandwidth. I think you must be in a hotel or someplace like that, that we're now we're wearing you down with your bandwidth. So I want to cut to the very end of this. You had a group of people, a group of companies, luminaries on gene editing, sign a letter and you talk about it on page 265. And I am skeptical of all such letters. Because I don't think they move this. The the coming wave might actually move public opinion. And you say it's time for treaties. And I have no confidence in international organizations beyond the five eyes that cooperate on intelligence. Is that just your general you're a laborite kind of guy coming out of London? Uh, Is that your general inclination towards regulation and the belief that people can get along? And I'm a very skeptical right winger, skeptical of the state. Or do you really think it 
that people will self-regulate out of the greater good? Look, I think that people will self-regulate out of the commercial good, right? Just like airline safety emerged initially from the airlines themselves not wanting to get a bad reputation for being unsafe. And if one airline was reckless, then that, that created a bad reputation for all the airlines. So they had a commercial interest to try to coordinate among each other to hold each other accountable, to keep standards as high as possible. And that obviously then became the official regulation eventually. So look, I, I think that the profit incentive is always a great one. And there will be a profit incentive to do this safely here. But of course, it's not enough. I mean, we also have to have strong regulators on the government side that are capable of doing the kinds of interventions and transparency that you talked about earlier. The very last thing I want to cover, Mustafa, is the most powerful illustration in the book. I don't know how to play Go. I've seen people play Go, and I have an idea of the level of complexity involved in Go. But when you won it, Go, would you tell the story so people can understand where we're going and how quickly we're going there? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you know, way back in 2016, 2017, we started training a, a, a Go algorithm called AlphaGo. Go is an ancient Chinese board game played on a 19 by 19 grid. Uh, so like a chess board, but instead of being 8 by 8, it's 19 by 19. So it's huge. And then players take turns of placing black and white stones to try and surround one another. And when you get four white stones around a black one, you can take that black one off. So the goal is to conquer territory. Very simple set of rules, but massively complicated state space. So the number of permutations is estimated to be something like 10 to the power of 170. So that's a 10 with 170 wow. zeros on the end of it, which is predicted to be more atoms than there are in the known universe, which is obviously impossible to imagine that number. It's basically huge. And so none of the traditional brute force search mechanisms work. You know, traditionally, you would have tried every possible combination of how the board could be laid out. And so we had to train AlphaGo to play against itself, um, you know, millions of times, simulating games against itself. And eventually, you know, we, it was very successful and beat the world champion first in Korea and then a few years later um, in China, in Wujen, uh, where, where we played Kujay. So it was, a, and, it was an incredible difference, experience. The difference in the description about the competition in Korea and then the one that occurred in the CCP territory and how one was exuberant and joyful and the other one was kind of resigned and sinister, I think is worth the read itself. I, I want to congratulate you. The coming wave takes science and where we're going and makes it accessible to readers and to the general public. Are you happy with the way the book is being received? Yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic at the moment. You know, I've really done my best to try and make these ideas as accessible and interesting to people. I really want to encourage people who aren't, you know, in the field to try to pay a bit of attention to this. It's really interesting. It's very easy to wrap your head around the basics. And, you know, it'll give you a bit of an insight into how this might affect politics and culture, you know, over the next decade. And more than anything, I want to protect our values, our American and, Brit and, and British, European and Western values of, of freedom. And, you know, I, I see this as an opportunity to try to do that. Oh, it's a creed de corps. And if you're like me and you've got five grandkids under the age of 10, 
you really worry about the world in which they're going to be functioning as adults. And this is a great flair. Well done. I hope you keep selling and I hope you keep coming back. I look forward to the next conversation, Mustafa Suleiman. The book is The Coming Wave in bookstores now available at Amazon, a bestseller and nicely timed with the Time Magazine story by Walter Isaacson on Elon Musk. Congratulations, Mustafa. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Hugh. This has been great fun and I look forward to the next one. Browns here in New York. And I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. Well, good morning, America. Morning, Glory. I'm Hugh Hewitt in Studio North. The president was not at the Ground Zero on 912. Brett Baer knows that. I know that. I'm joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report every night at 6 p.m. You can watch it. Good morning, Brett. What did you think of that when you saw that story this morning? Oops, we, we, I can't hear you there, Brett. We may have to retry you again. Uh, the unfortunate part of getting Brett early in the morning is that sometimes the cell phones are not working, so we're going to try again. Uh, meanwhile, as we wait for Brett, the White House rips media for fixating on Biden's age. That's in the Hill. Trump is really old, too, is Frank Bruni in the New York Times. Wall Street journalist, is Biden too old to run again? And Wall Street Journal editorial, Democrats start to panic about Biden. Brett Baer is back. So, Brett, what do you think about that that statement by the president in Alaska. Well, I just think that it's following that track that we've been seeing of speeches where something, something goes wrong in the speech, something is exaggerated. He says something that's just not true. I mean, Hillary Clinton wrote and said that she flew over as New York senator and saw 9-11 the next day. And those words, it looked like the gates of hell. Um, uh, you know, Senator Biden at the time was in D.C. Uh, he didn't go to 9-11 Ground Zero till nine days later. So the White House is going to say he meant the nine days later trip. But when you're in Alaska and you're talking about recollection, recollections of 9-11 and already the family's not at Ground Zero or one of the sites, maybe that's not the time to exaggerate. Yeah, I read the Wall Street Journal story today on they interviewed many, many people who were born exactly on the day that Joe Biden was born. And they spoke about what it's like to be 80. And some of them say, oh, it's fine. And some of them say, no, you really lose a step. And other people say you can go downhill in a hurry. I don't think this cannot be talked about, Brett. But it's also something that it is important to cushion how one discusses it. How are you handling it? Yeah, I don't think it's about the age. It's about, um, you know, what we're seeing about his ability to speak clearly, about his ability to even deliver um, teleprompter speeches. I think that the Vietnam news conference um, was an example of what people are seeing with their own eyes. You can say, I can't keep up with him. And the White House can say, he's got such energy. And then we can all see his lack of answers or I'm going to go to bed or they turn on the music and cut off the mic at the end of the news conference because they don't want him to say anything else. And those are things that people can see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears. So I don't think it's the number. I do think it's the capability. And it is clearly, clearly making Democrats very, very concerned. 
It's not only the capability, it's the contrast. And I go to the Frank Bruni argument that Donald Trump is really old, too. You have interviewed the president face to face for a long period of time in the last couple of weeks. I spoke to him for more than an hour last week on the radio. How would you contrast President Trump right now with President Biden right now? Because I think that is the response to Frank Bruni. Uh, But I'd like to hear what you think the contrast is. Yeah, I think it's it's significant. I think his um, his ability to recall um, facts and to tell stories um, is exponentially better than we've seen uh, President Biden extemporaneously. He does do a lot of interviews, President Trump. Um, President Biden does not. Um, you know, he mentioned being a truth social uh, because his golf game is pretty good. He's definitely the best. Um, huh. golfer we've ever had as a uh, as a president and he can he can shoot scores i mean he can really you know go after it and um you know that takes a skill as well uh yeah brett he's, when he the first question i asked him last week was do you remember billy jean king and bobby riggs 50 years ago because i was setting up a ratings question and he said oh yeah and by the way bobby uh, riggs beat uh, beat margaret court three months earlier who remembers that? I mean, that's actually one of those things that I didn't tell him about Margaret Court, but out of nowhere, he pulls that out and throws it on the table. That's not something I think President Biden can do. Well, I agree with you. And I think that his ability to recall moments and to look back at moments and kind of and, and talk about them is is really exponentially better than President Biden. So I think if President Trump is the nominee, he is itching to have that debate, uh, at least one, uh, with uh, President Biden. And um, I, the question is whether President Trump gets to that point. Right now, if you look at the polls, that's what it's heading toward. Um, but we have a long way to go. You know, I kept Byron York for three segments this morning, Brett, because, and that's very long to impose on, on Byron. But I said we're in the Hurricane Cone business now. We're like Frank Cantori or Jim Cantori trying to figure out where this primary is going to go. There are a wide variety of variables. But I have to say, not only is he ahead in the polls, I might change my bet on Candidate Casino because nothing's moving. It's static. And do you agree with that, that it's just kind of fixed right now? I do. I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, ground game in Iowa and New Hampshire and and how, you know, the former president is not, you know, well positioned with ground game. But I do know he's well positioned in the polls. He's well positioned in people who uh, even Republicans who are not inclined to support the former president have been somehow motivated by what they believe is a political effort uh, to go after him. So, in, in a strange way, in the primary, it has very much helped him. And we've talked about before the question of whether uh, it may hurt him in the general election. You know, we'll see how they all play out, but it's going to play out in the middle of the campaign season. I saw, I'm sure you saw the reception the former president received in Iowa, both by the frat and by the stadium. A few lefties tried to say he got booed mercilessly. That's not what I saw. What did you see when the former president showed up in Iowa this weekend, Brett? Yeah, I saw big crowds. I saw, of course, there are incidents um, where, you know, he's, you know, someone gives him the uh, other number one sign. Um, but you're in a big crowd of people. And I think that um, overall, where he's been going in these places has seen a big out, 
outpouring uh, of mostly support, uh, but obviously detractors there as well. Um, listen, Ron DeSantis was at that game too, and it was a much uh, smaller affair, but he claims that you know he was in the seats with the people, not behind the glass in the suite, et cetera, et cetera. The difference is he's the Florida governor and not the former president. Yeah, I, and that reaction of the frat boys, that really said to me, Iowa is Trump country. Maybe the Florida governor turns that around. I'm driving down to see Chris Christie in New Hampshire today at a town hall, and I think he's not in it to win it, but he's in it to to get a one-on-one with Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump's going to do Republican debates. I'm not sure. I used to think he would, but what do you think, Brett? Well, I think maybe as the the field winnows and there's a few people and he wants to get on stage in Iowa before – before the caucuses, I think that that's possible. Um, I don't know whether him skipping that debate of ours in Iowa back in 2015 ahead of the caucuses affected that turnout or that um, that race. But obviously, he didn't win Iowa in 2016's election. Um, so who knows? He may. Uh, but I agree with you. If he has a massive lead in the polls, his political advisors may say it's just not worth it. Now, I want to throw a curveball at you at the end. I don't know if you were watching Monday Night Football last night. I when was. Peyton and, what was your reaction? I, I told the fetching Mrs. Hewitt this morning, I stayed up way, way too late because it just bothers me so much when that happens to somebody. I know. I mean, all the hype. You saw all the Jets fans like waiting to see Aaron Rodgers. And then four plays in, uh, he goes down. Now, I don't know, you know the extent or – I haven't heard everything about the injury, but all I know is that I stayed up to the very end uh, to see that punt return, and uh, it was an awesome game. So congratulations. <laughs> well, thank you for getting up early because I did not stay up until the very end. I just stayed up a while thinking, my gosh, what are they going to tell us about uh, Brett, about Aaron Rodgers? Brett Bear, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Uh, special report tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, Brett will be on with, and they'll be talking about that, Andrews Air Force or the uh, Bergendorf Air Force Base. Exchange. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I'm sure. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt from Studio North, where we are eagerly watching the advance of Hurricane Lee, which may or may not be an inconvenience to me. I don't know. But we watch that path and we project where it's going based on computer projections. And we do that with every hurricane. Byron York joins me because I want him to do his hurricane projection for campaign 2024. There are a lot of places it can go, Byron, right? The map is all over the place. Where's the cone, in your view? <laughs> that's a, you know, that's a great question. I was listening to your uh, conversation with David, 
And I remember the in 2008 the John McCain Mike Huckabee Buddy Act that um, in the, in which they were trying to bring down Mitt Romney. Uh, I have forgotten how far Romney was ahead at oh, this yes. point. In the, the West Virginia race. Convention. Remember the West and, Virginia Convention? That was yes. that was really wildly cooperative between McCain and and uh, Huckabee in Iowa. In yes. Iowa, at this point, in 2007, um, Mitt Romney had a 16-point lead. Wow. Okay, so that's, I mean, it was, like I say, bigger than I remembered. Now, today in Iowa, Donald Trump has a 28-point lead. In New Hampshire, he has a 31-point lead. In South Carolina, he also has a 31-point lead. Uh, so it's bigger than that, and then b- bigger than than what Romney had. And then uh, your question with Dave is: Is, is can anybody form uh, any two candidates form a strategic alliance and try to get Trump out? Um, it's it's just kind of hard to do, you know. In Iowa, uh, DeSantis is still a strong number two. He's yes, what uh, eight points ahead of. Tim Scott. Tim Scott is, uh, excuse me, Iowa is Tim Scott's best state right now. And so he's in, in third place, and he's actually about four points ahead of Ramaswamy and Haley and then everybody else. So it, it's hard to see which two candidates could form the strategic alliance, you know, uh, uh, Will Hurd and Binkley, uh, huh. know, that yeah, would bring I, I, down Byron. Donald Trump. It, it, I don't have a scenario. I'm pretty good at cooking up scenarios. But the, 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 the reality is, if people don't drop out, Donald Trump is the nominee. Is that not the reality? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the other thing to remember, and, and I've written this occasionally, is, is that this is everybody. Everybody has a wait-to-see-if-something-happens uh, strategy. That's all they're doing right now. They're, uh, they cannot see a way in which Donald Trump loses his lead, but they think it could be possible through a series of events that they cannot predict right now. And if it does happen, they want to be in the position to benefit and to, to take the nomination when Trump um, collapses or just declines. And uh, the thing is, is that in terms of scheduled events, what events are scheduled between now and the Iowa caucuses? Well, it's basically just debates and uh, a bunch of, um, you know, cattle calls uh, that will attract a lot of, of, of candidates. So you think to yourself, well, OK, the first debate in which Trump is on stage with the others, could that have a, a determinative effect on this race? Well, probably not, but it it might help Trump. Um, and I, I can't see any debate, any any event right now that's scheduled, that's predicted, that would do that before Trump goes before the voters on January uh, the fifteenth. Byron, I had a uh, a tech subscriber upset with me because I declared that I believe, given President Biden's obvious infirmity that a convicted and confined Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden. And they were very upset with me. I don't know if they're never Trump or not. (laughs) But I do believe a convicted and confined Donald Trump, because I talked to Donald Trump for an hour last week, and that he's not Joe Biden. Joe Biden doesn't talk to anybody for an hour. 
uh, he, he talked to MSNBC for a half hour, Stephanie, for like, for like 20 minutes of a half an hour, and he get, had to get up and leave. He can't do it. You know, um, the, the, the other factor I was going to mention is that is it going to matter when Trump actually goes on trial? Um, March 4th, right before Super Tuesday, the, uh, the January 20 and the, excuse me, the January 6th and the 2020 election trial starts in Washington. Then in March, the documents trial starts in um, uh, Florida. And then later, the uh, other trial, the, the 2016 trial in New York. And the Georgia trial is kind of a, uh, of a wild card right now. Uh, so is, are, are any of them uh, actually going to matter? And, you know, they might. I mean, they, they actually might. I'm not, I'm not saying they don't. Because the one thing about uh, indictments right now is that Trump is standing defiant in front of these indictments. But he's not, he's, you know, he, he did have to be arraigned. He had to plead. Uh, and, and then nothing has happened publicly there. Uh, when 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 trials come, he has to actually sit there and be on trial. That may infuriate his supporters even more and uh, actually increase or at least harden his support. Uh, so if I look hand, at the cone, might have the I agree with you. And And by the way, after last week's interview, I am convinced he's going to lean into this the entire way. He is, yeah. he is going to absolutely lean into everything the entire way. And people miss some of it where he said, there's no plea deal they could offer me that I'd accept. They, I'm not going to take it. They missed a lot of his appeal. And I think it's becoming a very unusual, I don't think it's dangerous, I just think it's unusual, a countryside versus the capital election. And if I look at the cone, the cone says Biden, Trump, and, I, and the cone says Trump wins. I, and, you know, I, the, every, there are variables all over the place. But that's what I think, Byron. If you, you know, yeah. I might change my bet on the next Brett Bear candidate casino because it just seems to me that nobody's dropping out. <laughs> no, it, it, you know, and, and I wrote not long after the debate that we were really down to five or four candidates. But you know, I mean, Asa Hutchinson has to go, and and uh, Bergam has to go. And some of the low, you know, and if and if um, Tim Scott doesn't really show up at the next debate, I know he's got a lot of money, but uh, he's really not doing great at the moment. Vice so, President Pence is not surging. Vice President Pence is not surging, and he he just has a, a fatal contradiction at the heart of his campaign, which is that he's running uh, against. And uh, with his record, you know, as, vice, as Donald Trump's vice president. I mean, it's just an incredibly difficult situation. But if he gets so, out, I mean, he could be the secretary of state for a new president not named Trump if he throws his prestige, which is significant. And he, I mean, he's a genuine conservative behind somebody. But if you're looking at the governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, uh, Ambassador Haley, Vivek, former President Trump uh, on a stage, You've got a real chance of something happening. But if you add even Tim Scott in there, it begins to get confused. And if Tim Scott is running for vice president, he has no incentive to leave, right? No, and he has a ton of money. You know, uh, Larry Ellison, the tech billionaire, um, has given 20 plus million dollars to super PAC supporting 
Tim Scott. So he, he can really stay in for a long time. But a lot of, you know, Michael Bloomberg could have stayed in for a long time, too. And even when a candidate has a lot of money, if he's not just setting anything on fire, then uh, sooner or later he has to he has to get out. Yeah, right now there are incentives. In fact, I'd love you to, to stick around, if you can, for an additional segment, Byron, because I want to talk to you about the incentives. People have incentives to stay in a race. They have Absolutely. lots of different incentives aside from winning. What is Tim Scott's incentive to stay in if his numbers are not moving into double digits? Well, almost uh, every candidate who runs for president ends up with a higher stature after having run than before the run. That just you know, you're, you were talking about Mike Huckabee earlier. I mean, look at him, uh, a former governor of Arkansas, and I, I don't know where he would be have been today had he not run for president and won the Iowa caucuses in January 28th. Worked out had a had a big popular show on Fox, which he gave up to run for president again in 2016. But he really ended up in a much better place, more prominent place, uh, more money, more exposure, book deals, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I want people stick if you can, Byron, stick around because I want to talk about Vivek's incentives. I want to talk about Governor Christie's incentives and Nikki Haley's. Ron DeSantis is playing to win, as is, I think, Ambassador Haley. I'm not sure the others are. And they have incentives not to leave. And that's what I want people to understand objectively. Byron and I are just trying to get the cone right. That's it. We're just uh, Jim Cantori uh, doubles on a political show. Don't go anywhere. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Byron York with the Washington Examiner. Fox News contributor is going to come back. I make him do double duty once in a while. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Byron York is a Fox News contributor with the Washington Examiner. Uh, Byron, I'm going to keep you a couple of segments because we've got so much to do. I'm going to come back to the candidates in a moment. Former President Trump tweeted this morning. So let's get this straight. Didn't tweet. He put it on Truth Social, got picked up. So let's get this straight. We, meaning America, did a hostage trade in caps with Iran. We gave them five very tough, smart people that they desperately wanted. We likewise got back five people, but in caps. We also gave them $6 billion. How much of a kickback does crooked Joe Biden get? Does anyone realize how much $6 billion is? When I was president, I got back 58 hostages for zero money in caps. Remember Pastor Brunson? It sets a terrible precedent. Republicans call out the 25th Amendment now. Biden is incompetent. What do you think, Byron? (laughs) Well, it's been known from the very beginning that Biden and perhaps more importantly, the people around him were desperate to... Uh, have another deal with Iran, the one that um, Trump threw out. Uh, and the money, as I understand it, is is Iranian money that the U.S. froze. So so he, he Biden is giving uh, Iran its money back, uh, which Iran has really, really, really wanted. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, six billion new U.S. dollars we're giving to them. Uh, but still, it's I, I don't see how you see this as anything other than uh, kind of a victory for or, Iran. And it's is it a Hail Mary? It, it's some sort of strategic victory inside the Biden administration for the people who are pressing for a new deal. Now, here is what I think is the most important part about this. Donald Trump is out punching hard. And I think it's appeasement. I think it's a terrible idea. And I've talked to hostage negotiators for years. It gives Iran 
incentives to take more Americans. That's all it does. And the $6 billion they get, it's like Sam Bankman-Fried getting $6 billion back. They're terrible terrorist regime. But one way or the other, Trump is punching hard this morning. He's getting attention. And Joe Biden can't punch back. This is, this, you know, he invented a 9-11 visit yesterday, a 9-12 visit to the looking yeah. into the gates of hell. What are the Democrats thinking? Byron? I know you talked to them. What are they thinking about this? Well, there's there's a, a couple of strains of thought. One, that they're obviously worried. I mean, the president is too old to be president. He's he's frail. Uh, he appears confused. He rambles. All those things, all those things that you and I and and everybody who's listening to this can see with their own eyes every day. On the other hand, there's a significant group inside them uh, uh, who are uh, saying, you know, Biden is the most accomplished president uh, ever. Uh, and I mean, look at what Gavin Newsom, who wants the job, uh, said the other day. Joe, Joe Biden's presidency, presidency has been a master class in uh, accomplishing things. And l- listen to the New York Times lead from yesterday uh, of the of the trip. Quote, in three days of diplomacy in Asia, President Biden rallied world leaders to help finance poor nations, fortified the coalition backing Ukraine and struck a deal with Vietnam to counter Chinese aggression. But even before he left Vietnam on Sunday night, the president was hammered with a very different narrative, that being conservative media outlets seizing, yes, they use the word seizing, on his end-of-trip news conference. Okay, so the idea President Biden has shown what a great statesman he is, and he once again, conservative media seize on just, you know, a moment's stumbling to change the narrative from Biden's great accomplishments. Byron, my, my listeners in Cleveland, Ohio, will recognize the name Captain Penny. It's for preschool kids back in the day. And he used to close every program by saying, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool mom. Uh, and I, I believe about Joe Biden, you can fool some of the people some of the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool voters. You just can't. I don't care if the New York Times, I don't care if the Beltway Manhattan narrative is Joe Biden could win the decathlon. It doesn't matter. Yeah. And the, the other problem is, one, aging is something that every human being is familiar with. If they're a young person, they have an older relative. If they're getting old themselves, they see what's going on. Everybody can see what is happening with Biden and Aging is a one-way street. It doesn't get better. And so, I, you know, I think I, I was thinking this morning before I went on that uh, a year from now will be in the last two months of the campaign. It would be extremely intense at that time. We'll see how Joe Biden performs. In I, I don't think he's going to be the nominee. I really don't. Uh, Byron's going yeah, to stick around about- because we're going to go through the incentives of every Republican candidate. I'm going to drive down to New Hampshire today to see Chris Christie at a town hall. And uh, I want to talk through it with Byron. He's being very patient with me today. But we both occupy the same uh, Jim Cantore position on the political world. We're just trying to figure it out, right? We don't have a position. We're just trying to figure it out. I'll come back. Uh, A triple header with Byron York. The rare triple header with Byron York. I don't do this to him often or he'll never come back. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Byron York has stayed with me because we want to dial in and use Byron's expertise on the Republican primary. 
Byron, here are my assumptions going in. I want you to challenge them, walk through it, that uh, Ron DeSantis is in second place, and he's not going anywhere. Uh, Chris Christie is in second place, or first place in New Hampshire, above the contenders. He's behind Donald Trump. Nikki Haley is in second place in Iowa. They're not going anywhere. Tim Scott is not doing much, but he's got a lot of money, and Vivek is just having the ball. Um, Let's go through them. Am I right about Ron DeSantis? He's not going anywhere. I think you are, yes. All the way through Super Tuesday. Uh, well, no, not necessarily all the way through Super Tuesday. I mean, you've got to do pretty well in the uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina thing. You just have to. Um, and uh, if if he you know fails to catch on in that time, I don't I don't know that he actually continues. And that's only Iowa, right? I mean, if we were to look at today's polling. Yeah. Uh, you get an Iowa bump, but you don't get that much of a bump. Uh, and no. then you're eating into Chris Christie and Nikki Haley. You know, I kind of look at it, if I, if you if you wouldn't mind, I kind of look at it going from the bottom up. Okay. Okay, the, the low-hanging fruit. If you add Larry Elder, Doug Burgum, Asa Hutchinson, and Will Hurd, add them together, you get 1.6% uh, of the vote. <laughs> okay, so obviously, I mean, they should go now. Okay, they shouldn't really be in the second debate. Uh, And each of them, by the way, uh, what I was saying earlier, will end up in a higher place than they were before they ran for president. We could talk about that. But so it will have been a benefit to them. They should go now. But then the next person you get to is Tim Scott. Uh, Vice President Pence. Vice President Pence. Well, I'm I'm going up the the uh, 2024 polls. But, well, if you want to get Pence, listen, I've, I've been writing, I think, Pence has, has just is in a fatally contradicted right. position, and it just so doesn't he, work for him. He's going to leave the stage at some point before Super Tuesday. Will, yes. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tim Scott does have this money, but uh, I mentioned Bloomberg before. At, at some point, if you're just going nowhere, money uh, doesn't really keep you in the race. What are his incentives, Byron? What are his incentives? What are his incentives? He's the one, you know, does he want to run for governor of South Carolina? Uh, does he want to stay in through South Carolina? Does he want to win the, the two-person uh, South Carolina primary with Nikki Haley? Um, I don't know. If, it seems to me that if Haley pulled, you know, keeps doing well and pulls ahead in the, in the, South, Carolina prime, the, the South Carolina internal primary between just Haley and Scott, the two South Carolinians running, um, that I don't think he has a lot of incentive to stay in. What's the downside for Tim Scott to stay in? Well, the downside is 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 always the same in which you seem to be irrelevant and don't matter anymore. Damage to your future, around. right? You're just damage to your around. future. Why didn't yeah, Tom he, Cotton run? Why didn't Mike Pompeo run? Because they see political futures and they don't want to damage them. Yeah, as a matter of fact, those are two really interesting guys because they they ran pretty hard for a while. Yep. And they were really exploring and they were really thinking about it and they both decided it was time to spend more time with their families, which I think is an interesting uh take on this and my guess is I haven't spoken to them about their decision. Each of them is pretty happy with uh, with what they've decided. I agree. Now, what about Governor Christie? I I think he has the the clearest path forward here. He's going. He's on to an New ideological Hampshire. mission. He's on an ideological mission that is not really determined by support. It's like if he's in front of a crowd and he starts attacking Donald Trump and they boo him, 
and he'll he'll just say, "Well, the truth hurts." <laughs> you know, so can the metrics right? work? I mean, can the RNC keep him off of the stage? I mean, they're not trying to; they're being very fair. But they keep raising the metrics. Can he keep meeting the metrics? Well, if you keep well, there's a certain uh, part of the Republican Party that really is not just open to another candidate other than Trump, but wants Trump to go. And he's giving them their voice right now. And right now he has, in the national polls I'm looking at, he has more than uh, Tim Scott does. Yep. Uh, and a certain more, certainly more than all the other. The, he's in second he, place behind Trump in New Hampshire. Yeah. So, so he's got enough to hang his hat on to, to stay there because he's delivering this message. Now, on the other hand, if you listen to him very much, he's, he, he's hung his whole campaign on some great um, a confrontation with Donald Trump in which, which I guess Christie thinks he can just punch Trump in the nose hard enough and he'll bring him down. Um, so if there's this big confrontation on, on a debate stage uh, and it doesn't really work well for Christie, then he actually loses a lot of his rationale for running. Right, let's talk about Vivek now. Um, I expect yeah. Ramaswamy to be back on the show soon because he, he, he likes to talk. Yesterday he got on with Stuart Varney he and he and he declared the 14th Amendment does not confer birthright citizenship. That's been asked and answered for a long time. What is Vivek doing in here? What are his incentive sets right now? Well, uh, at first I thought his incentive sets. I was, I was going to bring up uh, the person of Andrew Yang, who nobody heard of before he ran for president in the Democratic primary in 2020, which was a 20-plus candidate primary. Uh, now, he's pushing a new book. He was just on Good Morning America uh, this week. And there's a story in Politico that he uh, hasn't closed the door on no labels. So he's in a higher place than he was before uh, he ran. Ramaswamy is definitely in a higher place than he was before he ran. But I think what we've seen after the debate was he really gets a lot of attention. People notice him. Some of them really, really like him. But he turns off a fair amount of people, too. His appeal is really double-edged because he does alienate some portion of the people who listen to him. You know, as I watch his rise, I conclude that whoever is the nominee, most likely President Trump, just based on the numbers right now, they should pick a generational change in the way that Ike picked Nixon. And I don't care if it's a, a female or a minority, just somebody under the age of 45 and probably a combat veteran. I've got a short list of uh, Tom Cotton and Mike Gallagher, and there are others, obviously, who depends on who the nominee is, but they've got, that's what Vivek is writing. He's just, he's the young, smart guy with, who's kind of savvy about everything. Yeah. But you have to remember in this race with Biden and Trump, all the other candidates, a 60 year old candidate represents generational change. When the candidates are so, the leading candidates are so old, uh, a candidate who's actually in the older range of presidential candidates, represents generational change. So you don't have to go to a 38-year-old uh, a candidate. You know, um, uh, even Mike Pence could qualify. Certainly Nikki Haley, who's in uh, her 50s, could qualify. DeSantis in his 40s would qualify as generational change. You don't have to go to somebody who's just barely old enough constitutionally to be president. Um, everybody's a generational change other than Trump and Biden. So neither of us believe that it's very plausible that either Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy will be the nominee, correct? Oh, no. 
No, yeah. not, not a chance. Let's get to the plausible. I mean, it's very plausible that Donald Trump is the nominee, but it's not implausible that Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis is the nominee, is it? That's correct. That's correct. I mean, you and, have to you have to think of a Trump collapse scenario, whether the, whether it's a quick collapse or a slow collapse. Um, you can say it's extremely unlikely, but, you know, all sorts of accidents are extremely unlikely and do happen. So you actually have to plan for it. And my guess is those would be the two beneficiaries of it. And so of those two, their incentives are to stay doing what they're doing. There isn't yep. any other incentive here, is there? No. I mean, DeSantis is running for president. And, you know, when Haley uh, kicked off her race in uh, in South Carolina, uh, a lot of people said she's running for vice president, running for vice president. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I, mean, I, I don't think so either. Running for president. Let yeah. me play you a clip of her last night in Iowa. Cut number 15. It is time for a new generational conservative leader. What do you think, Byron? Is she? I think she's picking up the idea that she can win. Yeah, that's exactly what she said in her announcement speech in North Charleston. Uh, that's exactly what she said. Uh, and she says it all the time. And it's a really compelling argument. And, you know, go, going back to our, our conversation in the last uh, segment, when you Joe Biden is just going to get older. He's going to turn 81 uh, on November 20th. Um, it's a compelling argument. Republicans don't really like to face it about Donald Trump, because Trump is so clearly more vigorous than Biden is. Uh, but you're betting on a president at the end of four years. So you're betting on pres- President Trump at 82 years old. Uh, generational arguments. Why, why are we having this? Uh, I, I, I don't know. And it's, it's dangerous anymore. for the country. Last yeah. question, Byron. When, when we're in this position, every one of these candidates we've talked about, Governor DeSantis, Ambassador Haley, Governor Christie, Vivek, Tim Scott, all of them can end the race by endorsing Donald Trump. I really believe it's sort of like when Chris Christie endorsed Donald Trump. I was in the studio with, at ABC this week when he went on with George Stephanopoulos and said, I'm endorsing Donald Trump. Jaw dropping, changed everything. You know, Trump was already ahead, was probably going to win anyway, but he sealed it. Do you see any of them doing that? You know, just doing a deal with Mar-a-Lago. Well, when you saw uh, at the first debate, uh, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum asked how many would uh, continue to support uh, uh, Trump or support the nominee of the party. You know, they all they all raised their hands. They actually all said so um, in order to get into the debate. So if after the first three primaries, Trump is just inevitable, they're going to support him. Uh, obviously, Chris Christie won't. Mike Pence won't. He's moved really into the anti-Trump camp now. Um, and, and a few won't. But uh, those bigger ones will support him because they're Republicans. And, you know, they maybe I don't I don't know if this, uh, Haley wants to run again in 28. But certainly uh, Ron DeSantis might think about it. You know, I, I just think the incentives for them, for because one Trump of them, not all of them. From day one, by the way. What's that? Because Trump will be a lame duck from day one. Right. So that changes a lot of the dynamics. They all have an incentive to be the first person to endorse Donald Trump among the serious candidates, don't they? This is more difficult than Chris Christie doing it 
uh, in 2016. It's, this is just more difficult because Trump's on trial. Uh, it's easier not to say something. It's easier not to endorse if the candidate's actually on trial. So uh, it's a scenario nobody actually imagined in 2016. Byron York, thank you for indulging me. It's just so complicated right now. And so many different factors at work. It's where the RNC uh, has tried to be fair to everybody, and they have been fair to everybody. And so I'm just, Byron and I are doing the same thing. We're just trying to tell you where the cone's going. And there's a big cone possibility out there. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you, Byron. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 